Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Horror Geek Podcast from HorrorGeekLife.com. I'm your host, Melissa, and joining me again this week is Matt. Matt, we are going to talk about two of the most classic horror slashers out there. Christmas Evil from 1980. Um, the second film that we're going to talk about is Silent Night, Deadly Night in 1984. But before we get into everything, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, as always, for having me. I'm really excited to talk both of these films. I am too. And are you ready for Christmas, speaking of the holiday? <laughs> is anyone ever truly ready for Christmas? <laughs> this is true. I actually went out today to do some shopping and I'm like at a loss. You know, you have those certain people in your life that are just so hard to buy for. Right. But you want to do right by them. But for me, it's my dad. You know, he is just so hard to buy for. And so every year, <laughs> I think he probably has like 150 pairs of work socks and you know t-shirts because I just never know what to buy him. But yeah, so I'm like down to those people that I I'm just kind of wandering around the stores hoping that something grabs me. So yeah, I've pretty much got all of my shopping done for the most part. And that aspect, I'm usually the one that is difficult to buy for. I would think that I'm really easy to buy for because I like everything. If you buy me like a new spatula or a candle or Blu-ray, like I'm just happy with all of it. So I just love Christmas and I love Christmas horror. So that's why I'm glad that we are having yet another episode, our second episode actually, about Christmas horror films. Okay, so before we get into the news, is there anything that you've checked out recently, played, watched, read that you would like to share with our listeners? I just recently got a book in the mail called Everything is Super by a writer artist named Rotstake. And I haven't finished it yet, but I just started it and it's been super phenomenal so far. It's kind of a surreal acid trip take on a superhero genre book, but it's really crazy. I've still been catching up on horror comics. And so some of the horror comics that I've been reading, some are really up to date, you know, current, and some came out within the last few years or so. One comic that I have read that I just finished is Philadelphia. Mm hmm. And I've read the first two volumes. So when Philadelphia came out, you know, it was really big on comic Twitter. Yes. People changed their bio to talk about Philadelphia. People changed their at names. I mean, it was just really big. And I think because of that, I was scared to read it because I thought, oh, no, it's just going to be maybe let down. Yes. So I finally read it. Oh, my God. One of the best comic series I've ever read. It is a phenomenal book. I hesitated reading it myself for the very same reason. I was very concerned that it was just going to be super overhyped and not live up to it. And this is one of those very few exceptions where the book is actually that good. It is. And for anyone who hasn't really heard of it, it's about, just as the title suggests, it takes place in Philadelphia, but it's about vampires taking over the city. Not just any vampires. What's really funny about the series is that it's a pretty graphic, gut-wrenching at times series, and it throws in a lot of historical figures I don't really want to give a whole lot of way here, but it plays with the founding fathers, you know, first presidents. I'll be like, wow, that was so good. And then I start thinking about it. And I'm like, it's kind of funny, you know, to, to read about like the founding <laughs> fathers and vampires. And but it's very solid. 
And then I also picked up the first issue of the spinoff, which is Nita Ha's Nightmare Blog, and I loved it. So I'm excited to continue on with that and see where that goes. And then the other thing I was going to mention is I just have to say this. So I just started a new podcast and the new podcast I've started listening to is the Always Sunny podcast. And (laughs) if you're a fan of Always Sunny in Philadelphia, okay, I guess everything comes back to Philadelphia for me this time. I didn't really think about that. But if you're a fan, you have to listen to this. It is just hilarious. They just started it last month, I believe. And so there's not a whole lot of episodes to catch up on. They go episode by episode and break it down and talk about it to hear them reflect back on it because I just finished binging the whole series for like the sixth time. And so to hear them go back to it and talk about what was going through their heads, you know, at certain times and like, how did we ever get away with this storyline? I'm excited for them to get further in the series when (laughs) horrible, horrible, taboo, unmentionable things happen with their characters and to see what they say about it. It's a really fun one. There's more than a handful of episodes that I would definitely be interested on knowing how they got away with getting it on air. (laughs) I know. The very first one that they start with, of course, is the first episode, which is the gang gets racist. And so, and it's kind of funny because Charlie Day was talking about that episode and, you know, saying they don't understand how anybody watches that and says, yes, I'm in for 14 more seasons. But here we are. I'm up to date on the show. It's on Hulu. So I catch it on there. And I mean, it's just such a great show. So yeah, so if you're a fan of that, y'all have to check that out. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive into some news that we have covered here recently. So first off, Nicolas Cage is going to play Dracula in Universal's Renfield. This isn't the first time that he has played a vampire. He was in 1988's Vampire's Kiss. The film is going to actually focus on Dracula's henchman, which is R.M. Renfield. So what do you think about Nicolas Cage playing Dracula in a Universal film? Which, I mean, that makes him Dracula, like for real. Right. The canon Dracula. Yeah. It's an interesting decision, for sure. I've loved that Nick Cage has just kind of embraced this B-movie role, like, status. I just wonder what direction he's going to take this in, if he's going to take it more seriously. But I'm definitely interested to see how he pulls it off. You know, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. I never thought that in 2021, I would be more of a Nicolas Cage fan than I ever have been. (laughs) Agreed. I have just enjoyed so much that he has done recently. I still need to see Pig. I have heard just great things about that film, but I'm excited to see this. And I am very curious to see what he does (laughs) (laughs) because it plays out in my head sometimes kind of Willy's Wonderland-ish. And then, yes, very over the top. But, you know, The Color Out of Space, it was a more serious film, and he really nailed it. Yes. And, of course, Mandy and -hmm. Pig. And that kind of segues into the next bit of news, is that Universal's also planning a modern version of Phantom of the Opera. This will actually be a remake of the 1925 classic film, Phantom of the Opera. It's going to be written by John Fusco, and it's going to be produced by John Legend, the musician, as well as Harvey Mason Jr. and Mike Jackson. I'm not excited at all. That's always been a property that I've never really gravitated towards. Same. I can appreciate it for its merits and for the time. It's just not in my wheelhouse. 
Yeah, you know, for me, it depends on the director because they haven't announced the director. They haven't announced any cast or anything. So I'm really curious to see the director that they attach to this. And I think depending on that name, I'll see where my excitement level and interest is at that point. But we'll see. It's very interesting that John Legend is attached to it. Yeah, I thought so too. And I'm a fan of his. I think he's great. He's brilliant. So I don't know. We'll see. Yep. Universal is just taking their MonsterVerse and they are running with it. Props to them for that. They're keeping it all alive. And next up on our news is that Hell to the Deadites documentary is now streaming on Shudder. So Hell to the Deadites, we did review it. Our reviewer loved it. It's actually a documentary about the fandom that Evil Dead has spawned. If you want to check that out, it's now on Shudder. In the same vein, Halloween Kills Extended Cut is now coming to Blu-ray, so that should be out here pretty soon. Are you going to watch the Extended Cut? I'm sure I'll pick it up. I was one of the uh, few, apparently, that actually really enjoyed the film. I'll definitely pick it up and watch it. Yeah, I mean, I kind of felt like I was putting a target on my back being one of the only Rotten Tomatoes approved critics to actually have (laughs) such a good review. It's not a glowing review. I had issues with it, but... I had a great time watching it. I'll probably watch the extended cut. I haven't really looked into what it adds. Mm -hmm. I just hope it doesn't add more time into that freaking hospital chase scene. (laughs) So as long as that's not... (laughs) I thought that was too long to begin with, so... We definitely don't need any more of that. (laughs) Tommy gets a longer monologue. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Just all of the parts that even us who loved it kind of picked apart. Those are the only scenes that are extended. Please (laughs) know. So Guillermo del Toro, he went on the King cast, which is a Stephen King podcast. He actually talked about what film he would like to direct and adapt from Stephen King books. And he actually went with Pet Cemetery, which I thought was pretty curious because we already have two films of Pet Cemetery. But he did talk about how there are certain scenes that the films left out. You can't really pay tribute to the books leaving these scenes out. Mm-hmm. So he talked about the scene that he would love to just dump tons of money in <laughs> to, to make happen. <laughs> and it's all about Gage. So the quote from him is the best scene in the book is when Lewis opens Gage's coffin and for a second he thinks the head is gone because the black fungi from the grave has grown over like a fuzz over the kid's face. I think you cannot spare those details and think that you are still honoring the book. So I love the Pet Cemetery book. Mm -hmm. I love Mary Lambert's adaptation of it traumatized me traumatized most of us i think as a kid yes i saw it way too early (laughs) i saw it like an eight (laughs) at the same time when you read the book it's really scary book yes i agree i mean i would watch it definitely if he did it yeah i'd give it a chance it can't be as bad as the recent remake i am not a remake hater i enjoy lots of remakes but Ooh, that was rough. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm a huge uh, John Lithgow fan, so that had me excited. Yes. Not even the legend himself could save that film. Yes. And then our last bit of news is that Netflix gave us their first look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel. So it is coming to Netflix on February 18th. The director is David Blue Garcia. And this is actually going to be a sequel to Toby Hooper's 1974 film. It's going to do the same thing that Halloween 2018 did, where it kind of says all of these sequels never happened. Sorry, Chop Top (laughs) and Horny Leatherface. 
Never happened. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And it's going to pick up many decades after the first film. They put the teaser out there. You know, the teaser, it's a quick thing, but it has that iconic Texas Chainsaw Massacre music. It's very tense. There's some good memes, though, that came out from some of the screenshots (laughs) that I've enjoyed. But I'll check it out. So uh, you're a big fan of this franchise. What do you think? Are you excited about it? As long as it's not Texas Chainsaw, then I'll enjoy it because I am a huge fan of the franchise, but that film does not exist to me because it's just one of the worst things I've ever seen. Texas Chainsaw is one of those where people love the franchise, but they also don't love the franchise. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. For me, I only recently, kind of recently saw part two, which I know horror blasphemy here. I'm sorry, but I love the first (laughs) one. (laughs) The second one was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. The third one was actually the first one I ever saw as a kid. I love the third one. But then as it goes on, I really liked the remake of it. I really I enjoyed the remake. I thought it was brutal. It was fantastic. But yeah, I'm I'm curious to see this and to see how they handle the time jump. Right. It'll definitely be interesting to see how they handle certain characters. Yes. Okay, so talking about two cult classic Christmas horror movies. And the first one is going to be Christmas Evil, which came out in 1980. Now, we talked about this for a minute on our last episode. Mm-hmm. The last episode, we talked about Tubi films, and we did talk about Silent Night, Deadly Night as well. And on that episode, I need to say this, on that episode, I said that Silent Night, Deadly Night, the first one, is not on Tubi. And at the time, it was not. (laughs) However, now, (laughs) it's made a liar out of me. But now the uncut version of Silent Night, Deadly Night is on Tubi, so both of these films can be watched with ads for free. So there's that. But again, we talked about this film for a second. And I said, you know what, Matt, can we just stop talking about this and actually have a whole episode about it? And we decided to pair it up with Silent Night, Deadly Night for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Let's dive into this one. So written and directed by Lewis Jackson, the film mainly stars Brandon Maggart, who we said in the last episode is the father of Fiona Apple, which is a pretty cool little bit of trivia there. Do you want to start talking about that one, Matt? It is way more of a character study of someone losing their mind than it is a slasher, even though towards the back end of the film, it definitely starts leaning way more heavily into the slasher genre, I'd say. But it's still ultimately just a great depiction of a man going crazy. And I think that sets it apart from all the other Christmas slashers. And it's just so masterfully done. Maggart's performance is so good. I've seen this film several times, and every single time I'm blown away by his performance. It's just so strong. I was really surprised whenever I finally watched it about how strong it is, because I was expecting, especially by, you know, the cover art's great, the poster and everything. I mean, it's great. But that and the name Christmas Evil, I did expect something way cheesier. Mm-hmm. And in the last episode, you said, you know, it falls more in a category with Joker and Taxi Driver. And throughout the entire film, I kept thinking about Taxi Driver. Like, how can you compare Christmas Evil to two of these films <laughs> that, you know, are just award winning everything? Uh, it's true. So mm-hmm. yes, let's start from the beginning here a little bit. 
a young boy named Harry. He walks in to see his mother doing inappropriate things with Santa. That seems so great because there's like almost no physical contact even made. Yes. It's so great. It is. And it really has an impact on him because he has really high hopes of Santa and he sees his mom having some fun with him that traumatizes him. Yeah, there's not really much more to the reason that he, I guess, loses it. It's very strange, almost not enough for someone to have this kind of psychosis. (laughs) It's a Christmas horror movie. I mean... I think the Silent Night, Deadly Night had a much stronger backstory yes. <laughs> for yes. for someone going crazy. But either way, young Harry was very traumatized by this. And 33 years later, he's working at a toy factory and he is Christmas obsessed. Very much so. I want his apartment. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Yes. It is totally decked out in Christmas. And this is just the thing that he looks forward to all year long. But, you know, but he's also someone that people kind of push around a little bit. They make fun of. They walk all over him. He's turned into a doormat. I expected him to really snap probably... 20, 25 minutes into the movie. And although he starts to go that way, he really doesn't snap for most of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, he goes most of the movie where you just see him kind of what you said, you know, you just see him start to unravel. It makes you so tense to watch because you don't know when he is just going to snap and just lose it and do what we know that he's leading up to do. Yes. It is the perfect embodiment of ticking time bomb. And it is so edge of your seat. And like you said, super tense the entire film before he finally just lets go. The moment that he puts the Santa suit on, you just know this is it. He's finally just full blown gone. I love that scene. But at the same time, he is still someone who, even though he's kind of going into this psychosis, he still really cares about children. He does. He cares about Christmas. He still has this part of him that holds on to this innocence of Christmas. Mm -hmm. To see him balance the two, you know, this homicidal or almost homicidal (laughs) maniac, I was so on the edge of my seat. The scene where he goes to the children's hospital, he is going to deliver toys. I was so on the edge of my seat because I kept thinking, please do not kill these people. (laughs) Please do not kill (laughs) the workers of the hospital and the children. And you just see, you know, this good nature within him, Mm -hmm. this conflict. And it's like he's such a kid himself. The scene after the first time he kills someone, he leaves the scene and is trying to just, I guess, figure out where to go next. And he runs into that. I don't know if it was like some kind of community center where they're all dancing and he runs in there and expects the people there to treat him like the people just had with mean heartedness. And he runs in there and they're actually celebrating the spirit of Christmas And you see in his face the appreciation that he has for that. He's just a complete embodiment of the spirit of Christmas. And that's all he wants. He wants everyone to feel that way. Again, his performance conveys that so well. And the juggling act between this hate for people that don't appreciate it and then the love that he feels towards the people that do. So powerful and just great. It is. This is all set with really great sound effects and music. 
Yeah, there's so many aspects of this film that just outdo every expectation someone going into the film for the first time would have. I think that makes the film even better. I can't give this one enough praise. I think it's not talked about enough. Hopefully this will help some people see it. Yeah, I hope so too. The ending of the film... It's kind of left open to interpretation. Very much so. You and I talked about, after I watched it, you and I talked about it, and I told you what I felt happened at the end of the film, and you agreed that that was your interpretation. Mm -hmm. I'm really someone who loves a conclusion. I like to know what happens at the end. Yes. The fact that this one didn't give me that exact conclusion that I'd be looking for, it was actually okay. Mm -hmm. Because it added this fantasy and this whimsy that even though something really dark is actually happening (laughs) at that moment. Yes. It doesn't make you feel that. There's two really strong conclusions, I think, that you can make from the ending. And either one works for me. If it was all part of his psychosis then that's fine because we, as the viewer, already know that he is off the deep end. The second one is if it did really happen, then that's pretty awesome too, in a way, just because his whole belief system was so strong towards this Christmas spirit that he finally got some of that, (laughs) you know? Exactly. Either interpretation really works for me, and there's not many films that can do that. I absolutely agree. I feel like Silent Night, Deadly Night is an excellent Christmas slasher. I recently rewatched it after probably not seeing it in maybe eight or nine years. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it. And I forgot about how heavy the beginning is. Yes. There are some trigger warnings (laughs) that should be applied with this film, mainly child abuse. Mm -hmm. There's also rape. So let's dive into this film now. This one was directed by Charles E. Sellier Jr., and it was written by Michael Hickey. It starts with a five-year-old boy named Billy Chapman. Billy and his baby brother, who is still an infant, and his parents are going to visit the grandfather, who is catatonic. So they say. Yes. When they get there, this creepy grandfather is sitting there just not moving in a chair. And the parents and the administrator at the hospital he's in think it's a great idea to leave five-year-old Billy alone with this creepy grandfather. (laughs) Who is the scariest part of this film. Yes. When this happens, the grandfather tells Billy pretty much Santa horror story that if you're naughty, (laughs) Santa is going to get you. And this five-year-old boy who is played by actor Jonathan Best, who, by the way, went on to do Mormon animation films. He very much did not continue his slasher career here. I mean, this kid is so cute and he is such a good actor. He is such a believable Mm -hmm. child actor, which is really hard to find, especially in the horror genre. (laughs) But this kid sells it, which makes your heart break even more. So it's Christmas Eve and this creepy old man is telling him about how Santa is going to do horrible things if he's naughty. They get back in the car and they're driving home and a man who just robbed a store dressed as Santa and killed someone attacks them. And he shoots the dad and he rapes the mom in front of Billy and kills her. And it's just a very horrible thing that happens. And five-year-old Billy is watching from the bushes the whole time. So after Billy goes through all of this, it just gets worse. It gets worse. 
And that is just, oh my God, it's heartbreaking. Five-year-old Billy, he goes into an orphanage with his brother. The orphanage is ran by the meanest freaking nun who loves to punish the kids with physical punishment. Mm -hmm. She actually torments him with Santa while trying to cure him Right in this deranged way. She thinks she's doing him a favor. But I mean, you think about everything this kid's been through and what he saw Santa do, plus the creepy grandfather thing. Right. All in one night. And now she's like, well, I'm going to make him sit on Santa's lap. Yes. After I give him the mullet. Yeah, and this poor kid has the ugliest <laughs> mullet. I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about, like, insult to injury. It just gets worse and worse for the kid. It does. But then whenever he is faced with Santa, he <laughs> gives Santa the right hook. And <laughs> that dude goes flying, too. <laughs> yeah, the kid's got a mean hook, for sure. I wish he would have done it to Mother Superior, if I'm being honest with you. Yes, so. agreed. <laughs> yes. Thankfully, there is a nice nun that is there that is supportive of him. But he grows up in the orphanage. And when he turns 18, he's a big strapping lad. <laughs> when they first unveil him as, I guess, an adult, they're almost trying to make him into the sex symbol. And I crack up every <laughs> yes. time they do that, that slow pan up his body. <laughs> it's just so hilarious. <laughs> it is. Yeah, so the nice nun is trying to convince the owner of a toy store to take him in for employment. And he's like, I can only use strong men to move these big boxes. And well, meet <laughs> Billy. I'm surprised he didn't have like chest hair sticking out or something. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Yes, it totally could have been Chuck Norris standing there. <laughs> <laughs> And then they have the greatest montage with the worst music ever. But he's like lifting children with one hand, <laughs> lifting these really heavy boxes. and Without even breaking a sweat. Without even breaking a sweat. It's great. He's working at this toy store. And of course, it comes to their annual Christmas party. It starts triggering his trauma. He goes full on slasher. The store owner makes him dress up as Santa. Yes. And that's what, what pushes him over the edge. Yes. He starts off in the back. There's a, two people that started to get a little frisky, but then it got out of hand and went into full sexual assault mode. Mm -hmm. And so he comes in and he's the hero. He really does him in, but then he turns on her. You know, at the end, he does go after Mother Superior, mm -hmm. which he should. She's now an old lady in a wheelchair, but we're still mad at her. So, yes, I'm not even mad that this big muscular guy is going after this frail woman in a wheelchair because she has it coming still. <laughs> but before that, they totally pull like a Ben Tramer. Oh, yeah. They kill the wrong Santa, just like in Halloween, too, when that happened. No one cared. Yeah. They shot a poor deaf man who couldn't hear the police officer. Damn, like, that was sad. And okay, I guess we have to be over it now. <laughs> yeah. But when he does go after Mother Superior, he is caught and killed before he can kill her. And I thought that was a shame. All in front of his brother. All in front of his brother, who says, what? Naughty. And, of course, who does part two pick up with? All about little brother. It is. And part three. Yes. So the next two carry on the story of Ricky. The next two are in a different tone. 
They're both just awful, awful films. <laughs> there is definitely some comedic elements in the second one. Mm -hmm. Just because of how awful it's not trying to be funny. It's just that bad that it's funny. <laughs> the third one, not even Bill Mosley himself could save. <laughs> it's just nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. And then Brian Yuzna comes in and saves the day with part four and five. So yes, between the two, they have a lot in common. They have a young boy who gets traumatized, grows up, goes to a toy store <laughs> or a toy factory in one and then a toy store in the other. Mm -hmm. They get triggered and they start carrying out their homicide. A big difference with this is that Silent Night, Deadly Night had a lot of attention on it when it came out in theaters. Right. The theatrical poster is one of my all-time favorites, but that really made people mad, especially moms. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, everybody by now has seen all of these images of protests. They're marching around in front of theaters. Although Christmas Evil was lumped into the video nasty circuit, which a lot of films were. Yeah, every film. You know, Christmas Evil definitely didn't get the same type of hatred as Silent Night, Deadly Night. And it is because of the theatrical release. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Christmas Evil would have gotten that if it came out in theaters and had theatrical posters hanging up? I would imagine so. It was a little bit before, but I don't think early enough to where it would have made that much of a difference. I think if it had been wider released and had an actual like marketing behind it, people would have tore it to shreds. Yeah, I've wondered about how bad they would have because in 1980, when it came out, it was certainly the beginning of the slasher rage because Halloween had just released prior to that. Right. I feel like moms and I mean, really, it was just a lot of moms. Yes. I feel like they weren't really focused on slasher films as much yet. Right. But it was certainly getting there because this was only four years later. I think Christmas Evil does a good job at showing how amazing the relationship he has with children in the film is. It actually really respects that. Some of those scenes are actually really emotional. I don't think it would be as good of a film without those scenes by any means. So I think that really helps the film. And if people would actually sit down and watch the movie before they just see the poster with a evil looking Santa on it, then it might have changed some people's views. Yeah. That's just not how the world works. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. And it's really sad that even now this is how things are. Just because we were talking about Joker earlier, I'm thinking about how many people review bombed Joker pretty much before it even came out. I think just based on a trailer or maybe not even that. Right. Based off of the memes of him on the stairs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there were some good ones, though. There were. Now, with Silent Night, Deadly Night, despite all of the controversy, or maybe because of all the controversy, you know, because critics were tearing it to shreds, and it still did good in the box office. That weekend that it came out, it overtook A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, it, it did great, especially based on its budget. Right. I mean, controversy sells sometimes, right? <laughs> Always. Yes. <laughs> So that wraps up this episode of the Horror Geek Podcast. Thank you, Matt, again for joining me to talk about these awesome Christmas cult classics. Always a pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode. Please be sure to follow and subscribe if you enjoy the show and connect with us on social media at Horror Geek Life. And I'm at Horror Geek Mel on Instagram. Until next week. 